Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So if this takes a little longer and it doesn't meet your deadline, that's okay. Because it's not, it, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And if we finish well, we'll be very successful. It's very similar to, as you know, parents trying to just, okay, so it's going to be a calm down. It's going to be great because there's still no deal, no clear end in sight. Kevin McCarthy has been successful at failing to get the votes for the 11th time. Good morning. There you see us again. It is Groundhog Day. Caitlin is live at the Capitol. Abby and I are here in New York. It's become a thing. And this hasn't happened in 164 years. Not us. I'm talking about the speakership. Vote number 12, just hours away now, and we are all over the action at the Capitol. Yeah, and Don and Poppy, as Kevin McCarthy is limping toward the fourth day of this, he and his allies are still <clears throat> negotiating behind closed doors, signaling they'll make more concessions in this frantic effort that we are seeing to secure votes. We should note those are concessions that would diminish his power as speaker and actually embolden the very rebels that he is negotiating with. Also this. Go ahead and go over the cop. I don't like how he went down. We're going to need everybody. I'll call. I'll call. We need everybody. Call and bring everybody. We need everybody back, everybody. Bring the cop with the medics, all of you, and get Woods out here. You heard it there, an all-call for the medical staff moments after <laughs> DeMar Hamlin collapsed. Hear how the emergency response played out as we get encouraging news on Hamlin's recovery. Yeah, but we start this morning on Capitol Hill where there is still no speaker this morning as Kevin McCarthy is going to try again in just a few hours when the House is set to reconvene at noon today after adjourning last night. We have seen this very scene 11 times now. That's the House clerk calling each member's name to vote only in the end for McCarthy to fail to meet the threshold every single time. It's been a three-day stretch of defeats in the speaker contest that is now the longest in 164 years. Despite promising these major concessions to the Republican holdouts, McCarthy did not gain any ground on vote after vote after vote yesterday. But he still says he's making progress, he thinks. He had a lot to answer for when he left last night as reporters swarmed him. CNN's Manu Raju was in the middle of it, pushing McCarthy for answers. It's remarkable in that it's the longest we've heard from Kevin McCarthy since all of this began. Listen to these shouted questions uh, McCarthy answers. No, no, I'm not putting any timeline on I just think we've got some progress going on. We've got members talking. Uh, I think we've got a little movement, so we'll see. Have you had to walk back the threats of your strip committee assignments we're, we're, from we're these not, members? We're not strip. I didn't make those threats. Was that a mistake to make that threat? I didn't make that Mike threat. Rogers did. Yeah, well, you're saying I made the threat, so let's be very clear. I did not make the threat, and no members are not going to lose their committee assignments. Do you think How long do you think this sir? is going to drag out for at this point? I'd love to know, but we're working through and we made good progress today, so we'll continue to talk. Did your people never vote for you? I mean, we're three days into this. This is the longest since the 1850s. 
Well, I have the longest speech on the floor, so apparently I like to make history. Are you concerned? I mean, you're giving, you're giving one member the power to oust you if you're a speaker. That's aren't you going to... That's the way it's always been, except for the last speaker. I think I'm very fine with that. But you're it's fine. undercut your potential power as speaker. Has it, cut, has it undercut the power of all the other speakers? But it was used over John Boehner. So why would it cut my... We have been in this position since 1859. I mean, doesn't that inherently mean that you would be a weaker speaker? No. No, it would only be a weaker speaker if I was afraid of it. I'm not a weak. Are you, are you concerned that there might be more than four who will just never vote for you among the Republicans? Um, no, I think we can. Do you are plan you to go to a conference? Are you worried about losing votes from moderates if you give too much away? Uh, everybody's involved in it. He's got to get there completely. And he, look, Mr. Mr. McCarthy, do you, can I finish you, his answer first, his question? Thank you. Um, look, this is a new thought we're going to have to have. We have a five-seat majority. So it's not one side's going to get more than another. It's the entire conference is going to have to learn how to work together. So it's better that we go through this process right now so we can achieve the things we want to achieve for the American public, what our commitment was. So if this takes a little longer and it doesn't meet your deadline, that's okay. Because it's not, it's, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And if we finish well will be very successful. Do you plan to go to conference, Mr. McCarthy? You've been doing this for two months, though. Why did Why did one of these sort it out before January 3rd? Uh, we tried to sort it out. Mr. McCarthy, do you plan to go to conference? Thank you for stopping. Mr. McCarthy, do you plan to go to conference? And to talk about everything that happened there, seeing as Lauren Fox joins us now, you know, it struck me several times during all of that, but him saying that that one vote to, to motion to oust a speaker only scares you, is only bad if he's scared of it. And he said he's not scared of it. But, I mean, we've seen how it's been wielded in the past. He should be scared of it. Yeah, I mean, he said he's not going to be a weaker speaker. He doesn't think he's a weak leader. But the reality is the concessions he's making will make him weaker. And there's just no way around that very crucial fact. I mean, not even talking about this vote to oust a potential speaker, but also the fact that all of a sudden he has to put Freedom Caucus-aligned members on committees like budget, like appropriations, like the Rules Committee. Those kinds of concessions really make a strong difference in how you can even govern, how you can legislate. The Rules Committee is supposed to be the Speaker's committee. They dictate all the rules on the House floor for how a bill is going to come up. So he is looking at a much weaker speakership if he can ever pull this off. Caitlin. And I think what Manu said there at the end when he said, you know, you've been trying for two months to get these votes. Now we're seeing it after 11 rounds. I, I do think it speaks to why wasn't there a bigger push like this, you know, a month ago to avoid a scene like this playing out on the floor. Yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable that he went to the floor knowing he didn't have the votes and it just never felt like the momentum was moving in his direction. But I think this echoes back to 2015 when he bowed out of the speaker race. Eventually, folks got Paul Ryan to run. Paul Ryan, really a reluctant speaker. He didn't want the job either. And I think McCarthy looks back at that, seeing that Paul Ryan had some of the same problems he's experiencing now and says, what am I going to do? Step aside and let somebody else get this job. And in six months, they're the enemy of the Freedom Caucus or these 20 hardliners. That is a big reason why I think McCarthy is staying in this race right now, Caitlin. Yeah. And it stuck out to me last night. One of the hardliners said that whoever is going to be the speaker would have to agree to their demand. They say, Lauren, you have a very busy day ahead of you. I know the house is set to come back at noon today. We'll check back in with you. Thank you for breaking all that down ahead. We're also going to speak with Republican Congressman David Valadeo. He is supporting Kevin McCarthy. He's very interesting. Remember, he is one of those Republicans who voted to impeach Trump 
We'll tell you what he is saying about the Republican holdouts who are blocking McCarthy's path to the speakership time. All right, we'll check back. Caitlin, thank you very much. And this morning, we are hearing what the first urgent moments sounded like as emergency workers rushed to save Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin after his on-field collapse Monday night. Doctors say he is making remarkable improvements after suffering cardiac arrest, though his road to recovery could be long. Let's go to CNN's Adrian brought us live for us in Cincinnati with more this morning. Hello, Adrian. It is incredible how quick the, the response, the quick response, I should say, saved his life. Absolutely, Don. And people finally heard the news they had been waiting to hear that DeMar Hamlin is awake and communicating by writing his first question, asking, did we win the game? And doctors here at the University of Cincinnati uh, medical Center say that update fans received yesterday goes back to that quick response on the field Monday night. The doctors crediting the Bills medical team for recognizing that something was seriously wrong. Injuries happen on the football field often, but doctors here say it is rare to have such a quick response. And that response prompted physicians to be at DeMar's side within minutes. Listen in. Go ahead and go over the cot. I don't like how he went down. We're going to need everybody. I'll call. I'll call. We need airway. Call and bring everybody. We need airway doctor, everybody. Bring the cot with the medics, all of you, and get Woods out here. Field medics. Go ahead for field medics. Read to her, son. Go ahead. I need another medic in the back, please. You know, medic in the back of the bus. Affirmative. We are right outside the gate. Come on, Molly. Critical moments, but that team remained so calm. Doctors also sharing with us that there was prompt recognition that Demar lost his pulse, which led to immediate bystander CPR. And if they had awaited minutes or seconds longer, the outcome, Don, could have been different. Way worse. Thank you very much, Adrian. Brought us in Cincinnati this morning. We do have an update on the suspect accused of murdering four Idaho college students making his first appearance in court since being extradited from Pennsylvania. He, this all comes as a police affidavit tells us a lot about the evidence authorities say connects Brian Koberger to those killings. Veronica uh, Miracle joins us live in Moscow, Idaho. Seven weeks it took, a little over seven weeks uh, to find the suspect. And now we actually know how they got to him. Poppy, so many disturbing details and what police say uh, happened that morning and then in the weeks to follow in that affidavit that was released right before in court. One of the families was there in the front row and they hardly ever took their eyes off of Brian Koberger. Brian Koberger, clad in an orange jumpsuit, appeared in an Idaho courtroom Thursday. All right. The 28-year-old is charged with the brutal stabbings of four University of Idaho students more than seven weeks ago. Mr. Koberger, I am going to advise you of the rights that you have in this case. 
In newly released court documents, investigators detail the evidence that led to his eventual arrest. According to the affidavit, Koberger's DNA profile obtained from the trash at his family's home matched DNA on a tan leather knife sheath left behind at the crime scene and was found laying on the bed of one of the victims. That same document says one of the surviving roommates says she was awoken around 4 a.m., heard crying from Zana Cronodal's room, and heard a voice say, it's okay, I'm going to help you, and that she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask. She describes him as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows, saying he walked past her as she stood in a frozen shock phase. But questions still remain about why no one called 911 until almost eight hours later. The document also details multiple sightings of a suspect vehicle from surveillance footage showing a white Hyundai Elantra like this one that helped lead to Koberger's arrest. About two weeks after the murders, police from Washington State University, where Koberger attended school, flagged his vehicle, later seen at a traffic stop in mid-December in Indiana, while driving with his father to Pennsylvania. Is this your car? Okay. And before the cross-country drive and just five days after the murders, Koberger received a new license plate for his car, according to Washington State licensing documents. Cell phone records also show that Koberger's phone was near the victim's residence at least a dozen times since June, including about five hours after police believe he committed the murders, according to court documents. Koberger, seated with a new court-appointed attorney, responded to each charge of murder. Do you understand? Yes. While no evidence was released that connects Koberger to the victims or any indication of motive. The pain for the victim's family is all too real as some sat in the courtroom. It's obviously an emotional time for the family seeing the defendant for the first time. Um, this is the beginning of the criminal justice system and the family will, will be here for the long haul. And there was an entire page redacted from that affidavit. So there are still questions to be answered, including why this happened. What was the motive? He is next due in court on January 12th. <clears throat> Poppy. Veronica, thank you for the update. Coming up in just a few hours, 8 a.m. Eastern right here, you're going to hear from the father of victim, Kaylee Gonclaves, why he says the suspect was afraid to look him in the eyes when they were in court. And now to Ukraine, where a Russian-declared 36-hour ceasefire is now in effect. Vladimir Putin ordered the temporary truce to coincide with the Russian Orthodox Christmas. Ukraine, for its part, hasn't agreed to the ceasefire, calling the move by Putin hypocrisy. Scott McLean, live for us in Kyiv this morning. Scott, is this unilateral? Good morning to you. Is this unilateral ceasefire holding? The answer is absolutely not, Don. And Merry Christmas Eve from here in Kyiv, where a prayer service just wrapped up here with the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and members of the military. And they will need all the prayers that they can get, because, of course, as you mentioned, the Ukrainians have given no indication that they'll uh, observe this ceasefire. And of course, the Russians have given every indication that they will return fire and will not allow the Ukrainians to easily uh, improve their position along the front line. And even just now, since this ceasefire has been in effect, my colleagues on the front line, Ben Wiedem and Kareem Hodder, have witnessed firsthand incoming and outgoing fire along the front line in eastern Ukraine. Um, and just about 25 minutes ago, the air raid sirens went off here in Kyiv. The head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, we spoke to him briefly after this service. He said that that is ample evidence that the Russians had no intention of respecting this ceasefire. One other thing to mention, Don, is that is that the former president of 
Russia said that the Ukrainians had rejected the hand of Christian mercy. I've spoken to plenty of soldiers here who say that there is nothing Christian about Russia's invasion of their country. Right, right on. Scott McLean, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Her police officer fiance died after responding to the January 6th Capitol insurrection, and now she is suing former President Donald Trump. Plus this. Five shots straight through the, my front door, my front window. A series of shootings apparently targeting elected officials in New Mexico. We have a live report ahead. Well, this morning, police in Albuquerque are looking at five shootings that are possibly connected and targeting the homes and the offices of Democrat elected officials. The most recent shooting involves the former campaign office of New Mexico's attorney general. It's very scary. Um, you know, as a, as a mom, it's just it's something that you never want to experience. Right through the front door, five straight, five shots straight through the, my front door, my front window. Um, went straight all the way through my house, through my living room, out my back window. Both my husband and I were, you know, just sat up because of this noise. We, it felt like somebody was using their fist to pound on our door. It's very disturbing that we have, that people think it's okay or that they, they feel emboldened to do things like this. Lucy Kafanov has the reporting on this and joins us uh, live this morning. That is very scary. Five different incidents. Yeah, Poppy, good morning. Not as good of a morning in Albuquerque where detectives are investigating these multiple incidents where the homes or offices of local elected leaders have been targeted by gunfire in the past month. All five are Democrats, as you've pointed out. The shootings all taking place on separate days. We had three in December, one just before noon yesterday, another on January 3rd when at least eight shots were fired at the home of State Senator Linda Lopez, whose soundbite you heard uh, just moments ago. Three of those bullets popped passing through her 10-year-old daughter's bedroom. And while no one was hurt or injured, understandably, this is some scary stuff. Police describing this investigation as a top priority and are working with federal partners, including the FBI, and asking the public for their help. Any new leads on a suspect? No leads in terms of specific suspect or suspects. They do have some leads in this investigation that they're looking into. But police also say they can't even be for sure whether these shootings are connected, if they're politically or personally motivated. Obviously, there's some concern it, they might be, which is why we're talking about this today. And it is the anniversary of the January 6th Capitol attack. So there's, you know, this is coming against the backdrop of increased concerns about political violence across the nation. Guys. All right, Lucy, thank you very much. Appreciate that. And up next here on CNN this morning, new legal trouble for former President Donald Trump on the two-year anniversary of the Capitol insurrection lawsuit filed against him by the fiance of fallen u.s capitol officer brian sicknick that's next more cnn this morning to come after the break welcome back to cnn this morning you're looking at live pictures of capitol hill where so much is going on today here is what is coming up this hour donald trump sued by the fiance of brian sicknick he was the capitol police officer who died responding to the insurrection of course today marks two years since the insurrection 
His fiance taking legal action against a former president. Also, the House Speaker drama now raising the alarm over the debt ceiling. Our Christine Roman's here to break it down. And also, uh, some really significant news out of Prince Harry's new book. We'll tell you what it includes. As Poppy mentioned, today marks two years since the attack on the seat of America's democracy when pro-Trump rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol to impede the peaceful transfer of power after Donald Trump's 2020 election loss to Joe Biden. Now the estate of Brian Sicknick, a Capitol police officer who died after responding to the insurrection, is suing the former president. Here with the details is CNN's senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. Paula, good morning to you. What do you know? Good morning, Donald. We're actually getting some news about special counsel Jack Smith. We've learned that he recently returned to the United States. He had been working abroad in Europe following a bike accident. And now that he's back, we've learned that he is staffing up. And Don, he is going to need all the help he can get because we have learned that he has a a mountain of new evidence to sift through as he decides whether the former president or his associates should be charged related to January 6th. We cannot afford to brush political violence under the rug or turn a blind eye when others encourage it. While President Biden commemorates the second anniversary of the January 6th Capitol attack by presenting medals to D.C. police officer Michael Fanone and other law enforcement officials who responded that day, the Justice Department continues the biggest criminal investigation in its history. Already, more than 950 people have been arrested for their alleged participation in the deadly riot. Roughly half have pleaded guilty and 40 have been convicted at trial. Just one has been acquitted. The House Select Committee that also investigated January 6th believes that prosecutors should charge former President Trump and his associates as well. We want to make sure that the key organizers and movers of this attack don't escape um, the uh, scrutiny of the justice system. That decision is now up to special counsel Jack Smith, appointed to oversee the investigation into efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Attorney General Merrick Garland promised that Smith's appointment wouldn't delay the investigation. He promised uh, to the American people in his own statement that uh, there would be no pause or hiccup in his work. But Smith is still in the process of putting together his team, bringing on two longtime associates who specialize in public corruption cases, a source tells CNN. Smith also must comb through a massive amount of evidence, including what the January 6th committee recently turned over and discovery collected from lawyers for Trump allies late last year, some of which has not even been opened yet, according to sources familiar with the probe. Smith himself fired off a round of subpoenas to officials in seven key battleground states and received a trove of documents and this voicemail from someone claiming to work for Trump's post-election legal team seeking access to voting machines. I'm a lawyer uh, with uh, Rudy Giuliani's team working for the president and uh, we need access to some Dominion machines which we understand uh, maybe something that you could help us with. 
Federal prosecutors have been increasingly focused on Trump's state of mind after the 2020 election. But in an interview with CNN, Trump's lawyer, Tim Palatori, said they are not worried, at least about the evidence gathered by the committee. They've outlined a few charges here, all of which are completely legally insufficient. And so, uh, you know, we, we kind of look at it as, you know, it's political noise, but it doesn't really have any effect as of right now on our defense. The January 6th committee ran into obstacles with key witnesses like Mark Meadows, but the Justice Department has additional tools, including going to court to try to compel these witnesses to cooperate. But time is of the essence here. There is a lot of concern that this could go too far into the election cycle. So Smith is under a lot of pressure to move this along and make these decisions as quickly as possible. Don. Right. Paul Reed in Capitol Hill, thank you very much. And here we are two years out, uh, and now this is what we have in Washington, Caitlin. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable to see this playing out on the two-year anniversary. And we'll see President Biden speaking today. Don, obviously also happening here today on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers are going to resume with still no speaker in place. And without a speaker, the House cannot convene and cannot begin official business. And that means, among other things, that no classified briefings for lawmakers who oversee the nation's national security agencies. And there are some of them who are raising concerns about what that means for the period of time that we're in right now. Technically, I don't have a clearance. I, I'm a member of the Intel Committee, I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and I can't meet in the SCIF to conduct essential business. My point is, we have work to do that we can't do right now. We have a third, one of our three branches of government offline right now. That is a very dangerous thing for our country, and it cannot continue much longer. If I sit on the House Intelligence Committee, we oversee all 19 intelligence agencies. We are currently offline. Joining me now is a member of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Jason Crow. He says the security situation in the Capitol is undermining lawmakers' ability to do their jobs. Good morning. Thank you for being here. You know, what kind of concerns do you have about the effects, the real effects that this gridlock is having on the ability to do things like monitor national intelligence and security and look at those matters. Yeah, Kaylin, I sat on the House Intelligence Committee and the House Armed Services Committee in the last Congress. I've really made national security a focus of my work here. And we're not receiving briefings. We're not able to have the discussions with the administration. I actually tried to go to the White House and, and lead a group the other day, and they wouldn't allow me in because I'm a member-elect and technically not a member of Congress right now. Uh, so there's a lot that's happening that, that's preventing oversight, preventing us from doing all the normal work. Uh, and it's not good. I mean, the, the work of the national security apparatus here on the Hill has really ground to a halt at this point. So because of all of this, you had issues getting into the White House. That's right. That's remarkable. Has that ever happened to you before? It's never happened before. But, you know, I'm going into my third term in Congress. And uh, if I've learned anything, it's that there are pretty unprecedented things that have happened every term. Yeah. One big question about how this is going to look today is last night we saw they adjourned until noon today. Some of them want to keep adjourning until they can actually make sure McCarthy has the votes or however this ends up. Did Democrats, are they going to fight to stay here throughout the weekend, do you think? Yeah, we will. I mean, we're, we're here, we're ready to do the work list. And I, I am entering my third term in Congress. And every single time I've started a new Congress, whether in 2019, when we had the nation's longest shutdown, uh, 2021, when we had the insurrection, and now 2023, uh, when the Republicans are unable to elect a leader and convene a Congress, Democrats have been here. We've been ready to do the work. Our sleeves are rolled up. We're here. Uh, we're, we're ready to go. 
I have a, a whole slate of legislation that I have for my constituents and for the American people. Uh, let's do the work and let's get it done. There have been some questions over whether or not Democrats could ever support a moderate Republican if that name was put forward for speaker. Do you think that that's a scenario where that could happen, where you could support a moderate Republican? No, I'm not going to support a, a Republican for Speaker of the House. I'm going to support Hakeem no Jeffries. Republican. I would not support a Republican for Speaker of the House. Uh, I, I will support Hakeem Jeffries because he's in the best interest of the American people. I'm a proud Democrat. The Republicans have proven at this point that they are unwilling and unable to govern for the American people. And, and you know, whether, regardless of who they put up, uh, they have acted irresponsibly. And until they have the personal reckoning that they need to have and find principle again as a party, uh, I'm not going to support them. So there's no concessions that any Republican could make to you that would pull you across the line? No. Okay. Uh, one thing that we did see happen yesterday when you talked about the names that have been put forward is someone put forward former President Trump's name. Obviously, that's that's not going to happen. I think he only got one vote. But what did it say to you as someone who was here on January 6th for that to happen, you know, the day before the two-year anniversary of that day? Well, I was there on January 6th, as you know. I was trapped in the House gallery surrounded by that, that uh, mob that uh, killed a police officer and brutally beat over 100 others. Uh, it was a, a terrible day. It was a really terrible day. Um, you know, what I've learned right now is that you have a group of Republicans who have forsaken their oath and their duty. Uh, they're more interested in power, more interested in supporting, uh, a, a um, frankly, a sociopathic ex-president than they are in doing the work of the American people. Uh, and these people are sitting in the House, right? The, that is just the reality. Uh, but I've been sent here to do work, to do a job, and that's what I'm going to do. Some people have said Kevin McCarthy kind of brought this on himself because he went down to Mar-a-Lago after Trump was being, you know, condemned by a lot of Republicans after January 6th. Do you think that that's the case here? Well, what I think is when somebody forsakes principle and they are focused more on the pursuit of power and they're willing to make a deal with anybody in pursuit of that power and they lose sight of their moral compass, that eventually that catches up with them. That's what I think. I think that's what you're seeing with Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he has a reputation on both sides of the aisle of somebody who is interested in raw political power. And when you don't have principle and you don't stand for anything, uh, then, then you don't have a foundation. And I think that, that he is uh, uh, floating around in space without any base of support right now. Uh, and you're seeing that coming back to bite him. Yeah. On a logistics front, do you think it's odd that he's in the Speaker's office, given he is not the Speaker? This has been... a complaint that some of the rebels, the hardliners against him have raised, but in practical, practical terms, is it odd for him to be in the Speaker's office? Well, I personally think it's odd, but if there's one thing I've learned about Washington is that ego and hubris can explain a lot of what happens around here, unfortunately. Uh, certainly was putting the cart before the horse and not something that I would have done, uh, but uh, you know, I think he's learning his lesson here. Jason Crow, thanks for joining us. You might have a long weekend ahead of you, so we really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Caitlin. Yeah, Don, you just see the moments here of what we're seeing play out. That these are actually having real-life implications on staffer. I talked to a staffer of a new member yesterday. They could not even get their cell phone because of what's happening here. They can't have these basic duties that normally a new member of Congress or a, a member who's just won re-election would normally have in these early days here in Washington in January. And they haven't even started to govern yet. So Yeah, and he couldn't yeah. get into the White House, Caitlin. Yeah. Yeah, really Jeez. remarkable. I mean, just to see like these the effects that this is having on so many members, yeah. not just Republicans who are in these negotiations, Democrats. but Democrats as well who have been in the chamber every day. Yeah. All right. We'll check back, Caitlin. The inability of House Republicans to elect a speaker raising alarm in both parties over the fate of the economy. Christine Romans explains next.
What I truly worry about, besides the internal dynamics, I worry about this uh, debt limit. Everything else, yeah, it's gonna be messy, government's messy. The debt limit's a thing that can have a massive impact. Look back to 2011, by the way. Look at what the stock market did when we approached the debt limit. He's right. That is former Republican lawmaker, now CNN senior political commentator Adam Kinzinger on what worries him so much about this divide in the Republican Party in the House. No speaker. They can't get anything done with lawmakers unable to even decide on a speaker. Raising the debt limit or the debt ceiling, as you've heard it called this year, could be even harder. In early December, well before this congressional Groundhog Day, Goldman Sachs warned that the upcoming effort to do that could be almost as bad as the months-long crisis in 2011 that cost the United States its perfect AAA credit rating. So let's take a look at what was then that chaos. Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner has vowed to take, quote, extraordinary measures to allow the U.S. to continue paying its creditors, including borrowing from federal pension plans. Because of this, the U.S. will not default on its debt immediately. We are just one week now from the deadline that could wreck America's economy and reputation. Leaders of both parties in both chambers have reached an agreement that will reduce the deficit and avoid default. Stock prices take a nosedive today. The Dow Jones Industrials closing down more than 265 points an hour ago. This losing streak now continuing in its eighth day, continuing even after the federal government avoided default on its debt. The Standard & Poor's downgraded the U.S. from a triple A to double A plus rating. And this has never happened in the history of the United States. They already feel fed up with Washington politics, even on this side of the planet, because it's having a true economic impact here in Asia Pacific. Tokyo is the largest stock market here in, in Asia. It is also the second largest holder of U.S. debt. The guy from S&P said that, you know, hey, Washington couldn't get their act together fast enough. And the question is, could it have been avoided if yeah. Washington had? It uh, could have, and it can again be avoided. CNN business correspondent Chrissy Romans is here with more on what we can expect. I think a lot of people don't actually get what the debt ceiling is. Look, this is America's credit card borrowing limit, right? It's really incredibly important here. And we have raised it, I think, 11 times since that crisis in 2011, 20-some times since uh, the beginning of, uh, uh, of the 2000s. We go over and over and over again. There's a debt ceiling that has been set to keep borrowing in, in control, and Congress keeps spending and cutting taxes, and so spending just keeps rising. And then they thrash about how to, what to do with that debt ceiling, and it gets raised again and again and again. But that uncertainty every time, every time that they try to raise uh, the debt ceiling or they fight about it, causes a loss of reputation in the U.S., and the U.S. is the safe haven for the world. Our treasuries are the gold standard, to mix a metaphor, for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. It's just not good. This is not a Washington story. This is a Main Street, yes. Wall Street money story. It is an international story. It is a loss of American credibility. To be playing this game is dangerous. And, and the question is, if they can't even, if we can't even get Congress started at the start of the year, how are they going to handle That's right. the big stuff? So that was 2011. And then again, there was another standoff two years later, yeah. 2013, over the debt ceiling. We were like round the clock covering it. And in the middle of that, I interviewed Warren Buffett. And this is what he said. This was almost a decade ago. Here's what he said about weaponizing it. I think the first thing that should be done is, is that 
both sides should say we will not use the debt limit uh, uh, as a as a weapon anymore. In fact, we should get rid of it entirely. Uh, we we can't just keep playing this this sort of game, and it, it, it's it's detrimental to the economy. It worries people unnecessarily. It, it, and uh, if they want to keep the debt down, they just uh, don't spend more <laughs> than they uh, raise in revenue. Boy, isn't that? If you want to keep the debt down, don't spend so much money. Don't cut taxes. Don't do the things that they have been doing to run up uh, uh, that limit. This he is said happened. it a decade ago, and then he said get rid of it, and they've done neither. They've done neither. And this is what happens if you don't raise the debt ceiling. All of this could happen, and it is destabilizing. It is dangerous. It can hurt the economy. It can hurt American jobs. It hurts American credibility. It can drive up interest rates even further, which makes it more expensive to fund our debt. And remember, the reason why we're piling up all that debt is because we run on credit in this country. We course, spend yeah. more than we bring in. And that's why we consistently go up that self-imposed self crisis, self-imposed. It's just playing with fire. It's so stupid. It's the it is the most stupid thing that happens in it's Washington. So stupid is the headline of the morning. <laughs> there are a lot of stupid things in Washington. All right, Christine, You're thank welcome. you for helping us understand. Done. I just you know, people don't realize that we get to see ourselves age. Television. <laughs> better now, boo. We have not aged a day, Don Lemon. Take it You back. guys have it, but I noticed <laughs> I was a lot thinner than and younger. All right. Uh, speaking of younger and thinner, Prince Harry is telling it all in his new memoir, what he reveals about fighting his brother and his concerns about his father marrying now Queen Consort Camilla. That's next. So the revelations keep coming from Prince Harry ahead of the release of his new memoir, Spare. New this morning, he is talking about the bigotry aimed at his wife. I want you to listen closely, especially to what he says at the end. Watch. What Meghan had to go through was, was similar in some part to what Kate and what Camilla went through. Very different circumstances. But then you add in the race element, which was what the press, British press jumped on straight away. I went into this incredibly naive. I had no idea the British press was so bigoted. Hell, I was probably bigoted you, before the relationship with, with Meghan. You think you were bigoted before the relationship with Meghan? I, I don't know. Put it this way, I didn't see what I now see. Mm -hmm. And that's not all that we're learning, including more about the time that he says his brother, the future king, hit him. There you see him there on your screen, our um, royal correspondent, Max Foster, and the, the anchor of CNN Newsroom. Max, hello uh, to you uh, across the pond. Listen, it's very interesting. I mean, you heard Harry tell Anderson that he, you know, was, he didn't see, he didn't really say that he was bigoted, but he said he didn't see what he saw until he met Megan, which is typically the case when people, you know, especially white people, get into interracial relationships. They see things they didn't normally see. If it, it doesn't exist to you, if you don't have to experience it. Yeah, he's talked in the past, hasn't he, about his unconscious bias. I think that's what he's um, going into more detail with with Anderson there. And uh, he realised that when he met Meghan, but more so, actually, when he left the royal fold and he's looking at it effectively from uh, California. So we're getting lots more detail, also lots more revelations. I mean, you made headlines, Don, around the world yesterday with your comment about many of these revelations being gauche. Uh, since then... Far more detail, everything from how Harry lost his virginity behind a pub, injured his private parts on an expedition to really serious matters, to him killing 25 Taliban fighters in Afghanistan, which is really blown up here because 
Former members of the military are saying you don't reveal details like that. It creates a security threat. So there's so many things coming through. But this is before the publicity round, effectively. This is promotional parts of the interviews which aren't running until the weekend and leaks from the book, many of which came out of a Spanish version that went on sale accidentally. Yeah. Um, Max, listen, specifically, though, what I was talking about was the fight with his brother. I mean, you know, I have family members and I fight with them and I'm not surprised that two men are having a fight. Most brothers fight and I didn't understand why he, someone revealed that. But what I also did say in that when I spoke with you guys, it's his story to tell. It's his and Megan's story to tell. Listen, I can, uh, as a member of the media, criticize them or, you know, at least offer some perspective about how I feel. But um, the other things, listen, it's their story to tell, but no one picks up on that when I say it's their story to tell. And I'm sure they won't pick up on me saying, you know what, if you are not a person of color, then you probably don't understand these things because it doesn't exist for you. So it's their story to tell, but I did not think it was some huge revelation that he had a fight with his brother because we often fight with siblings. It's just a family thing that happens. I don't understand why he was revealing that. Yeah, he talks a bit more about that in an ITV um, clip that was released as well. That's another interview coming on Sunday where he, he talks about this red mist that um, he had had in the past and he saw it in William in that moment at Kensington uh, Palace and um, uh, he felt that William wanted Harry to hit him back, but he refused to do that. Max Foster, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. You made a headline? <laughs> no, no, I was surprised I didn't realize I made headlines around the world, but I guess I did. I didn't either. Yeah. But I hear you. But there you go. Yeah. All right. All well, right, Caitlin, speaking of headlines around the world, this right? certainly is. Yeah, there's a lot of heads. Kind of in the same headline every day here in Washington. <laughs> we'll see if that changes today. You know, there have been three days, 11 rounds of voting. That has wow. still not changed. We are going into day four. Kevin McCarthy right now is still no closer to being the House Speaker. He says there's no timeline, but a big question for his Republican allies is whether or not his window is closing. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I think the American people, no matter how you vote, are sick and tired of drama, and this is nothing but drama. We're we're on multiple days now with multiple candidates from this group, so I'm not sure how Lauren Boebert on one hand can demand so much out of Kevin McCarthy, but then demand nothing out of someone else and be willing to vote for them to be speaker. (laughs) Marjorie Taylor Greene saying the American people are sick of drama. Has Marjorie Taylor Greene met Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, that's rich. Three days, 11 rounds of voting, and still no speaker. Good morning, everyone. Caitlin is in Washington, D.C. again. And Kevin McCarthy is suffering a historic defeat hours from now. What will happen ahead of the chamber's 12th vote? They're hoping that there's a glimmer of hope. There have been some very tense negotiations happening behind closed doors. Questions on whether or not a final proposal may be on the horizon, something that McCarthy McCarthy and some of the party holdouts can agree on. We'll wait to see if those hardliners can, of course. Also this morning, what we are learning uh, about the suspect in the murder of those four college students in Idaho, what we learned happened moments before his arrest and what witnesses saw that is ahead. Yeah, but in just a few hours from now, the House is going to resume here today. Still no speaker in place. 
Kevin McCarthy is going to try to succeed where he has failed 11 times over the last three days. Could the 12th one be the charm? It's not likely. And vote after vote, McCarthy has not gained any ground despite promising major concessions to Republican holdouts who have kept him short of the 218 votes that he needs to win the gavel. The gavel. McCarthy doesn't appear to be worried. He says there's no timeline for getting to 218, but the speaker's contest is already the longest in 164 years. So there are major questions right now at this hour on whether or not his time is running out. CNN's Jessica Dean joins us now. That is the question, because he says there's no timeline. Mm -hmm. But the question is whether or not those who are voting for him are willing to keep doing so, or whether or not there reaches a breaking point for them. That is exactly right. And there is, look, these moderates and the people that have have supported him say that they're going to be there, but their patience is only going to go so long. Eventually, he needs to show progress. That's what he was hoping to do yesterday. And if you ask McCarthy and his allies, they'll tell you they did show progress, because they're getting ever closer to a deal with some of these Holdouts, but the fact remains, they're just not quite there yet. Here's what he said last night when he was leaving the Capitol. No, no, I'm not putting any timeline on. I just think we've got some progress going on. We've got members talking. Uh, I think we've got a little movement, so we'll see. So again, this was intense negotiations yesterday. We saw a lot of these holdouts going in and out of meetings uh, with McCarthy allies, McCarthy himself stepping in there, key concessions that he continues to give away. But Caitlin, the fact remains that, okay, if he peels off some of these people today, which he's hoping to do, I think that you could say it's fair to say the goal today is to solidify this deal and and get at least, let's say, 10 or 12 of the 20 uh, over on his side. Do the math. You still have to get to 218. He can only afford to lose four. So you're still, he's still going to have to bring some more over. And again, to your point, some of these more moderates are starting to get a little twitchy about all the things he's giving away. Yeah. So we're going to see how he continues to kind of do the splits here to, to try to win. Yeah, some coveted gavels. And I know we're on Capitol Hill, but math is the point here That's where right. even if he does make that progress, I guess the question is they could put pressure maybe on those remaining. But when Marjorie Taylor Greene says she thinks there are still going to be six absolute no's. I think that sends the message. That's right. Six absolute no's when he can only afford to lose four. Jessica Dean, you have a busy day ahead of you, so thank you so much for joining us. Don, Poppy, I mean, just a remarkable moment playing out. Yeah, certainly is. And we have to remember all of this is playing out, Caitlin, on today, which marks two years since the attack on the Capitol. And some of the same people who voted against the certification of an election are up to their same tricks right now, ignoring the people's business. And if the inmates are now running the asylum, it is Kevin McCarthy who helped hand over the keys to them. Here's how. His leadership pack has given more than $300,000 to 17 of the 20 Republicans refusing to vote for him to be speaker. One of the largest recipients is perhaps the ringleader of the group, and that is Scott Perry. He has gotten $50,000 for his campaigns in the past decade. And when it comes to some of the others, McCarthy defended many or remained silent when they were accused of inciting violence, except in private. Didn't say anything publicly. Audio obtained by The New York Times revealed that McCarthy urged Republican leaders on a private call to monitor the public statements of lawmakers such as Matt Gates and alert him of any potentially dangerous messages. Tension is too high. The country is too crazy. I do not want to look back and think we caused something or we missed something and someone got hurt. Um, I don't want to play politics with any of that. And again, McCarthy called some of these fringe members a threat to their colleagues. 
in private, but in public. He refused to punish folks like Paul Gosar, who posted a video depicting the murder of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. McCarthy opposed a resolution to censure him and remove him from committees. And it's not just McCarthy. Fox Media, which is a mouthpiece, an agenda setter for the party, has highlighted and put a spotlight on many of these Republicans for years. Take, for instance, Lauren Boebert. She and Hannity got into it over her opposition to McCarthy. Watch. Kevin McCarthy does not have 218 votes. Kevin McCarthy and you will have, not and be you speaker. And you have 20. I, Kevin I asked McCarthy you a very specific question. If by Listen, Friday when we, when you we don't get this have right, 30. I will not, Sean. I will not withdraw. Here's the thing, though, right, when you create the monster. Problem is, Hannity has personally hosted Boebert at least four times since she has been elected. And Matt Gates, well, he has appeared on Fox a lot more than 180 times since taking office in 2017. So if McCarthy handed the keys to the inmates, the Fox network gave them a map of the facilities. And perhaps the most noteworthy of all, the one who arguably gave birth to these hardliners is, of course, Donald Trump. He wants McCarthy, but they're not listening to the warden either. Even having my favorite president call us and tell us we need to knock this off. I think it actually needs to be reversed. The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes and it's time to withdraw. Mm -hmm. And here's Gates last night. I love President Trump. I defended him a great deal in Congress, but uh, HR wasn't always his strong suit. I think President Trump is wrong to the extent that he supports Kevin McCarthy. And in case there's any doubt, that the wing doesn't have a plan or cohesive strategy? Watch. So I nominate President Trump because we must make our country great again. Mm -hmm. Gates nominating the man who helped inspire the insurrection on the eve of the two-year anniversary. Yeah, says it's volumes. kind of, it does. It's a kind of a moment you can't miss, Don. Yeah. Right and on. one of the people who, you know, you laid out there, Don, so well, the people that have been playing a central role in this, one of the people who says that they regret the role in the rise of the way the Republican Party looks now is the former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, who is joining us here. When you look at what's happening, and, and Don was just going through, you know, kind of what has set McCarthy up for this moment, um, you th believe that McCarthy is, is the reason that he is in this position right now. Caitlin, I think it's a perfect storm of the fact that you've got seven to eight members who would blow up that chamber if it would get them on Tucker Carlson's show, combined with the fact that McCarthy's weak and, and pretty untrustworthy. And that goes back to, you know, when I was in Congress eight, nine, ten years ago. Members over the years just don't trust him because he'll say anything to anybody. But Caitlin, this cannot be said enough. Gates, Boebert, and a handful of these members love this. They love what's going on right now. In fact, these, these people would prefer to be in the minority so they'd have an opposition they could go on Fox News about and yell about every night. Yeah, well, some of them have said they'd be okay if it was eventually like a Hakeem Jeffries as would. the Speaker of the House because then they have a, a foil. But does part of this predate Trump? I know Trump gets a lot of credit for so much of this, but a lot of this is these are House Freedom Caucus vibes uh, with John Boehner in 2015 and what it looked like uh, when he was pushed from power. 
This goes back to the Tea Party, uh, the Tea Party Caucus and then the Freedom Caucus in 2010 and 2012. And we made life hell for Boehner. Um, but my God, we wanted to be in the majority and we made life hell for Boehner, but it was generally, it was always about policy, you know, uh, balancing the budget, limiting government spending. There's no policy with Gates and Boebert and the rest of these hardliners now. It's literally all about being on Fox News, being on, on conservative talk radio. The, Caitlin, they love this. I've spoken to a few members though. I, I mean, most of the Republican caucus knows this makes the Republican party look bad. What about like a Chip Roy or someone who is saying, actually, the reason we want to change this is because we fundamentally want to change the rules. We want more members to have a voice. That's what Brian Mast, who is voting for McCarthy, told me the other day. Chip Roy harkens back to what we were like eight, nine years ago. It is about policy. It's about process to him. Chip Roy, Caitlin, knows that what's going on right now is making this party look bad. But you've got the seven to eight to nine, Bobert, Gates, and the rest of them who just don't give a damn. They want this. And it's going more, they've got more momentum, I think, than they initially believed. That's a concern I've heard from some McCarthy allies that I've been speaking with. Even once this gets resolved, what does it look like, do you think, for the next two years? Like, are we basically seeing what the next two years of governing look like here in Washington? Caitlin, this is a distraction. Because think about this. Uh, Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene are on opposite sides of this speaker debate. The minute this thing is over, they're allies again. They're all allies, and they all want to investigate Hunter's laptop. They all want Fauci's head. It's way more than just these 20. So when we get into all of the substantive battles and all the investigative stuff the next two years, it won't be 20, it'll be over 100. Because the mega caucus of this party is a hell of a lot bigger than 20. We'll see what it means for Republicans in the next election. I've heard concerns about implications for 2024. Joe Walsh, thank you for joining us this Thanks, morning Kevin. and for joining us here on Capitol Hill. Right. Well, th this morning, new details also uh, from the affidavit offer really a much clearer picture into what happened on the night of the murder of the four college students in Idaho. We've also learned about a surveillance operation that led to the arrest of the suspect who was seen placing garbage bags into neighbors' bins. John Miller, CNN law enforcement analyst, uh, is with us. Thanks very much. The affidavit said so much because we didn't know much in terms of how they got to this suspect and why. You know, the affidavit is the anatomy of a modern criminal investigation. I mean, how many times over the last seven weeks did we hear people say, the case isn't going anywhere, the police aren't telling us anything, you know, why isn't it solved already? But the affidavit tells us that really from the day of the murder, they start with the video canvas, then they develop pictures of a white Honda Elantra. Okay, it's a car, not a person, they don't have a plate. But then they ask other police departments, you know, to look for that car. A college police officer finds one. They then look at the owner of that car. On December 23rd, they get the cell phone record showing the owner of that car has been, what appears to be from the record, staked out in the area of that murder house a dozen times since August. So they start to zero in on Brian Kohlberger. But when you get into the affidavit, the chilling details, um, a downstairs surviving witness hears crying upstairs and a voice saying, it's okay, I'm here to help you. The dog barking, more crying, 
um, and then sees a figure clad in black walk out the door through the sliding glass uh, wearing a black mask. It's frightening even to read. It turns out, as we were, people were saying, um, and I guess everyone sort of thought, what's going on? Doesn't anyone know anything? Isn't there any evidence? Turns out there was a whole lot that they well, were working on that we just weren't aware of. A whole lot. But just like, and I've been in cases like this before, where you've got great leads and they fizzle, and then you have other leads working, and then one of them starts to pan out. There was a lot of evidence, but it came in bits at a time. And then literally two days before Christmas really accelerates. But some of the, some of the interesting things that haven't come out in the affidavit, uh, they're staked out in Pennsylvania at Brian Kohlberg's house, at, a, at his family's house in a very rural area. And the surveillance team that's watching from a pretty great distance uh, sees him come out and clean the car from top to bottom, inside and out, using surgical gloves to handle items um, as if, you know, the car was about to be sold almost. Um, they see him um, taking out the trash at 4 o'clock in the morning, Brian Kohlberg himself, um, and then putting it in the neighbor's bin next door. And why, are, why, are there, why is he under surveillance? One, they're waiting to get probable cause to arrest him so he doesn't get away, disappear, or they don't have to find him. But more importantly, they're there to see if they can recover that abandonment sample, something they threw away that would have his DNA on it. And that's why they went to the trash, collected it, and made that match that allowed the judge to okay that warrant. The most important thing, though, is motive. So we still don't have motive. And the clue to that is not only... Don, is it not in the affidavit, but, you know, Poppy, they came out the day they announced the arrest and said, now, who knows something about this guy who can share it with us? Because they're still trying to get into that. One other thing that nobody's talked about, Pennsylvania authorities are looking at this case that happened on the other side of the country, but saying this guy lived here. And based on the offender characteristics of a quadruple murder done with some efficiency in the dark, they don't believe that that is his first encounter with violence. Most killers don't start off with something like that. Right. So they're going back through unsolved cases in Pennsylvania to Gosh. say, what fits an MO? What fits the pattern? What fits the, the offender characteristics at the crime scene to see? Do, do we have an unsolved case that fits here? Because now we have things we didn't have. We have a name, we have DNA, we have things to compare. Wow, you're right. No one is talking about that. John Miller, thank you. We're grateful thank you for your analysis. Uh, President Biden facing growing pressure to deal with the surge at the border. We'll talk to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He joins us now about the administration's new immigration crackdown that is right after this break. Also this. Go ahead and go over to the car. I don't like how he went down. We're going to need everybody. I'll call him. I'll call him. You're going to want to hear this. It's new audio from the emergency response after Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin, collapsed. The latest on his condition next. So this morning, CNN obtaining new audio of the urgent moments after Buffalo Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin, went into cardiac arrest and collapsed on the field. Emergency workers wasting no time coming to his aid. Go ahead and go over to the car. I don't like how he went down. We're going to need everybody. I'll call. I'll call. We need airway. Oh, bring everybody. We need airway doctor, everybody. Bring the cot with the medics, all of you, and get Woods out here. Hamlin's doctors say that he is making substantial improvement, but he still faces many 
phases of recovery. To CNN's Koi Wire now, live in Orchard Park, New York, with more on this. Koi, good morning to you. It, uh, it, it is amazing how this quick response saved Damar. How are his teammates reacting now? Yeah. Don, incredible work in that moment. The players are actually calling trainer Denny Kellington, who leapt in and administered that life-saving CPR as one of the heroes. Bills coach Sean McDermott said that Denny's an assistant trainer, and for him to have the poise, preparation, and fearlessness to step up in that moment is profound. Now, as for the players, Don, it is easy to lead, right, on sunny days, but great leadership shines even in the darkest storms despite being whipped by those winds of agitation, and it is powerful to hear how this team is processing all of this. We've seen Don and Poppy, right, more and more the professional athletes recently being open and honest about emotions and pain. Naomi Osaka, Olympian Simone Biles are prioritizing her mental health over a medal count. And now this NFL team, these players, this coach making the unprecedented decision to quit playing in the middle of a game, demonstrating we don't have to play on just because that's what's always been done. Buffalo has smashed the status quo. Here's how team captain Josh Allen assesses how they're processing all of this. We've had some some very open and honest and deep talks, some unbelievable, uh, it sounds weird, but embraces as men, just hugging somebody and actually leaning into them. There's been a lot of that going around, and you need every bit of it. You, you really do. And, again, I think the fact that we just keep hearing good news about DeMar, it, it just keeps pushing us forward. So they push on and push forward. About 48 hours from now, they're going to be stepping out on that field, and they're going to be playing for DeMar. Their father told them, do it for them. Josh Allen said he's demanding that they go out there and do this for DeMar Hamlin. Coy Wire, thank you so much. You've been really terrific on this story. We appreciate it. He really has. All right. President Biden has unveiled a new border plan that both accepts but also expels thousands more migrants. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is with us live next to discuss. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. President Biden has announced new immigration restrictions, including a program to expel migrants from four countries who fail to use the plan's legal pathways. At the same time, it expands a program to accept migrants from those countries who come legally. This all comes as the president, this administration, faces growing pressure to confront this surge at the border. Today, my administration is taking several steps to stiffen enforcement for those who try to come without a legal right to stay. My message is this. If you're trying to leave Cuba, Nicaragua, or Haiti, you have, and we, or have agreed to begin a journey to America, do not, do not just show up at the border. So this new program effectively expands the controversial Trump-era border restriction known as Title 42. But... This is what President Biden said to reporters just yesterday. I don't like Title 42, but it's the law now. I have to operate within it. Our Rosa Flores, who has reported extensively on the border, joins me this morning from Houston. Good morning, Rosa. Help us understand this, because we thought the administration didn't like 42. It's hands of the Supreme Court now. What does this actually mean for Title 42? You know, it is effectively an expansion of Title 42. And Poppy, in reaction to this program has been mixed. Texas Republican 
Governor Greg Abbott calling it a Band-Aid, which really uh, echoes a sentiment from other Republicans who say this is this is just not enough. And immigration advocates on the border will tell you that they're disappointed of the Biden administration because, in essence, they say that this is the Biden administration using a Trump-era tool to manage the border when President Biden campaigned on much more humane policies. And human rights first on the border has documented that thousands of instances of violent acts against migrants who have been expelled to Mexico under Title 42. But here's the policy in a nutshell, uh, Poppy. In essence, there are 30,000 slots from those four countries that you mentioned, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Haiti, and Nicaragua, that the United States will allow to enter, but there will be vetting, they will have to apply, they will need sponsors, um, and this will all have to, have to happen legally. And the key is that if they don't, they will be expelled back to Mexico. Poppy. Rosa, thank you very much. Stand by, Rosa, would you, for this, because we're going to bring in now the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. Mr. Secretary, thank you and good morning. Good morning, Poppy. Thanks for having me. So the Biden administration says that it wants to end Title 42. But then just yesterday, the administration does this and effectively expands the program. How do you reconcile the two? Do you want to end it or keep using it and expand it? Poppy, that's uh, very easily explained, actually. Um, but let me take a step back and, and share with everyone what our underlying approach is. And that is to build safe and orderly pathways for people to come to the United States who qualify, to cut out the smugglers that are so ruthless, that are causing so much death, tragedy, and trauma, to incentivize people to use these lawful pathways and not take the dangerous journey and place their mm -hmm. lives in the hands of the smugglers. That is our underlying policy. We are uh, unable to use our ordinary legal authorities because a court in Louisiana has compelled us, has forced us to use the Title 42 authority, that expulsion authority, to the extent that we can. And so we are incentivizing through these lawful programs mm -hmm. that Rosa referenced, and we are disincentivizing using the authority that we're yeah. obligated to use right now. And I hear you about the federal judge in Louisiana. That was in May of last year, but, but then in, in November, uh, after that, the federal judge in, in D.C. ordered the end of it, and now it's up in the hands of the Supreme Court. You talked about smugglers and this policy, but isn't that a, a hope and not a guarantee? Because you've got a lot of Democrats, including four Democratic senators, who say that they are disappointed in this plan. They call it an inhumane expansion of the Trump-era Title 42, and they say it will, quote, further enrich smuggling networks. How do you know it won't? That is, Poppy, that is not what we have seen um, through the successful launch of precisely the program we announced yesterday, but when we uh, implemented it with respect to the Venezuelan nationals. We saw Venezuelan nationals willing to wait and apply through the process that we're expanding as of yesterday. We saw them wait to apply to avoid the smugglers. We saw a 90% drop in the number of encounters of Venezuelan nationals in between our ports of entry. And we saw an increasing number use our process and fly safely to the United States, knowing they were pre-qualified to enter and to gain work authorization, a very successful launch that we are now building upon. But you would concede this is an expansion 
of the Trump era plan to deal with the crisis at the border? Because you're now applying it to three more countries, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua. Poppy, uh, what we have done has no resemblance to what the prior administration did with respect to individuals uh, who are seeking humanitarian relief. The Trump administration tried to shut down our asylum system in its entirety. We're yeah. building safe and lawful and orderly wow. pathways. Fundamentally, though, fundamentally, Poppy, mm -hmm. we are dealing with a broken immigration system. Yeah. Everyone understands it to be so. Th the president on day one mm -hmm. presented a legislative package to fix that broken system. We need Congress to act. I was specifically talking, as you know, Secretary, about Title 42, not the other ways in which the past administration dealt with uh, immigration and, and migrants at the border. But I do want to ask you, because you brought up asylum uh, and how you, your administration is handling this so differently for asylum seekers, the Department of Homeland Security this week is now proposing uh, a new rule that would place additional restrictions on migrants seeking asylum in the United States. But this is what you told my colleague Jake Tapper in September of 2021. Do you think that asylum seekers who are fleeing violence, fleeing political instability, fleeing natural disasters, are they welcome in the United States? They most uh, certainly are. And U.S. law says clearly, uh, US code, 8 U.S. Code 1158, that anyone that sets foot in this country can seek asylum. Has that changed? Oh, it has not. It has not, Poppy. What we are doing is trying to bring order and safety to the asylum system. We are trying to cut out the smugglers. And so what we are doing is incentivizing people to come in an orderly way, in a safe way, to our ports of entry, rather than placing their lives in the okay. hands of smugglers. I will tell you, I have been to the border uh, uh, nearly 20 times, and each and every visit... Mm -hmm. I have spoken with our frontline personnel about the tragedies that they have witnessed firsthand. We have an obligation to cut out the ruthless smuggling organizations and to open our arms to individuals who qualify for asylum. We are trying to do both mm -hmm. through the policies that we are implementing. So let's talk about those people, because, yes, you've been to the border so many times uh, and so has our colleague Rosa Flores, who our viewers just heard from. She has covered this extensively. Last month, she spoke with a migrant family about the terrors of what they're experiencing. This is what they said to her. She says that she thought that her daughter was going to die overnight because it was so cold. They had just crossed the river. They were wet, desperate. Mato says she started knocking on doors, asking for help. She says that she prayed to God, that she hugged her daughter as tight as she could and tried to warm her with her own body heat as much as she could to try to save her daughter's life. So, Mr. Secretary, Rosa is still with us. And Rosa, I want you to have a chance to ask uh, the secretary a question since you're the one who's there. Yeah, and thank you so much, Mr. Secretary, for your time. I really want to focus on the human impact because I'm the one who interviews these people face to face. And I can tell you that I've interviewed women in Mexico who really just wanted to seek asylum in the United States, but they were expelled under Title 42 back to Mexico. And once there, after that, they were kidnapped. 
they were raped. And these are not isolated cases. As you know, there are many cases, thousands of cases of violent acts against uh, migrants who've been expelled under Title 42 since President Biden took office. So my question to you is, what is the U.S. government doing to prevent such violent acts on individuals who are simply just trying to come to the United States and seek asylum? Rosa, it is precisely what I shared with Poppy and that you and I have discussed uh, previously. It's precisely why we are trying to build the safe and orderly pathways to the United States. We're trying to spare these individuals the trauma that they endure by placing their lives and their life savings in the hands of smugglers. We have, and it's also why we have conducted an unprecedented attack against the smuggling organizations. We have accomplished more than 7,000 arrests. We have um, dedicated uh, really untold resources, personnel, technology, investigative capabilities to break up these smuggling organizations, to disrupt them. You and I have both seen too much tragedy on the border. It's precisely why we're trying to build the safe and lawful pathways that we announced yesterday and that we've been implementing since day one. Would you, Secretary, qualify what is happening on the border right now as a crisis? You know, uh, we, um, we have seen the situation at the border uh, managed in an orderly way. We have seen it in extraordinarily challenging circumstances as well. You can rest assured, Poppy, that we're doing everything that we possibly can to build a system that provides humanitarian relief in a safe and orderly yeah. way while trying to persuade Congress to fix what is a broken system. I understand that. Um, but just what you're seeing, what you've seen the 20 times you've been there, the record number of migrants at the southern border in la last year it was nearly 2.4 million. If that's not a crisis, Secretary, what is? You know, you know, Poppy, uh, we have seen 2.4 million encounters uh, at our southern border, and it is reflective of the greatest level of displacement of people in the world since World War II. It is reflective of a migration challenge that is gripping the entire hemisphere. When I was in Colombia, I spoke with the president of the country, the foreign minister, the minister of security, and they spoke of 2.4 million Venezuelans in Colombia now. We are seeing Costa Rica's population increasingly formed by Nicaraguans. We're seeing a tremendous movement of people throughout the hemisphere. And a regional challenge requires a regional solution, I, which is why President Biden has led the regional leaders in addressing it. I understand that, Mr. Secretary, but this is in the hands of you now and the Biden administration. I would just finally say that border officials have been consistently telling Rosa Flores, our colleague, they feel abandoned. Um, by this administration, by the federal government. So why has it taken two years for President Biden to go to the southern border? Poppy, um, uh, we have been dedicating uh, our efforts to the situation at the border since day one. Uh, we are incredibly proud of our frontline personnel who are tirelessly and selflessly dedicated uh, to the mission. The, the president knows the border very well. He is. Um, had his Secretary of Homeland Security visit 
multiple times since the very uh, initiation of the administration. And he's going to um, to see the border not for the first time um, in his uh, public service career right. uh, this Sunday. That. And I'm looking forward to joining yeah. him there. But as president, to see it firsthand, the net effect. Um, Secretary Mayorkas, thank you very much for your time and your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Poppy. And thanks to, yeah. thanks to Rosa, too, who's been down yeah, there. Very good interview. Very good interview. And speaking of uh, President Biden, he plans to honor those who fought to protect the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, we'll be joined by the former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Bonone. That's next. Well, this morning, President Biden set to mark the two-year anniversary of the Capitol insurrection by awarding 12 people with the Presidential Citizens Medal, included our officers who were injured or died after defending the Capitol and election workers who rejected the former president's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. MJ Lee, live at the White House with more this morning. MJ, tell us more about who will be awarded with this very special honor. Well, Don, as you know, President Biden often speaks about the events of January 6th and the stain that those events left on the country and some of the many heroes that emerged from that day. Well, today, some of those very individuals will be paying an important visit to the White House. Exactly two years after the nation's capital was rocked by chaos, violence and lawlessness. President Biden will mark the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with a tribute to the people who held the line. We must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. For the first time in his presidency, Biden will award the Presidential Citizens Medal to 12 individuals. The medal is one of the highest civilian honors given by the president to American citizens. The dozen recipients share a story of heroism and defiance in the aftermath of the 2020 election and in the face of a deadly riot on Capitol Hill. Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman lured rioters away from evacuating lawmakers by using himself as bait. Former D.C. police officer Michael Fanone was brutally assaulted by rioters. I, got one. I heard chanting from some in the crowd, get his gun and kill him with his own gun. Capitol Police officer Caroline Edwards. Adrenaline kicked in. Running back into the violence after losing, then regaining consciousness. I ran towards the West Front and I tried to hold the line at the Senate steps. And one hero will receive the medal posthumously. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who died the day after he responded to the insurrection. Biden will also recognize election workers who rejected efforts by former President Trump and his supporters to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Shay Moss and Ruby Freeman, mother and daughter election workers in Fulton County, Georgia, gave poignant testimony describing how Trump and his allies publicly disparaged and harassed them. It's affected my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. There is nowhere I feel safe, nowhere, 
Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? Over the past two years, Biden has spoken out fiercely against the events of January 6th. Democracy was attacked, simply attacked. And made attacks on American democracy a central political theme ahead of the midterms. Make no mistake, democracy is in the ballot for all of us. And all week we have been talking about the contrast between the drama unfolding on the House floor and President Biden getting to work here at the White House. I don't know if that contrast gets more stark than what we are going to see today. Of course, the president did insist earlier this week that he isn't enjoying seeing this debacle. He said it is an embarrassing look for the country. Don. It certainly is. Thank you very much, MJ Lee. And Caitlin, as we have been saying, here we go. Two years later, this is all playing out. You have what's happening with Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and then you have, you know, the, the anniversary of the insurrection. And now uh, these people who are getting awards and that's very special for them. Yeah, MJ is totally right that to see the contrast, to see what's going to be happening, what's playing out here with what President Biden's going to be doing today. It's just remarkable. And Don, so joining us is one of the 12 people who is going to get the Presidential Citizens Medal today. That is the CNN law enforcement analyst, Michael Fanone, who is a former Metropolitan Police Officer and obviously the author of Hold the Line, The Insurrection, and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul. I wonder what it's like for you to be here on the two-year anniversary. Like, what were you thinking when you were coming over here today? Uh, I was thinking it's really early in the morning. <laughs> um, but really, you know what I mean. It has to be strange to be back here two yeah, years later. Yeah, I mean, I, in a way, I'm tired of coming back here. Um, I'm frustrated at the uh, lack of accountability for those that were responsible for orchestrating the attack on our capital on January 6th. You know, we're two years out. Um, and while, you know, we've cycled a lot of uh, uh, individuals through the criminal justice system that participated in the attack. You know, Donald Trump is still walking around a free man. What about what we're seeing play out when we talk about this split screen with Kevin McCarthy? Because you wrote this op-ed for CNN.com yesterday and you said that he once told you he could not control the French members of his party. And we're seeing it play out in real time when it comes to him trying to get the speaker's gavel today. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people predicted what was happening today, and um, I certainly um, am not surprised. Again, I had that conversation with uh, myself and uh, Officer Harry Dunn and Gladys Sicknick, the mother of Brian Sicknick. We sat in Kevin McCarthy's office, and he told us point blank, I can't control the fringe members of, uh, of my party. And so here we are, um, you know, about a year and a half out from that meeting, and Kevin McCarthy is desperately seeking the speaker's gavel and cannot control the fringe members of his party. Um, you know, by definition, uh, a leader should have a firm grasp on all the members of his party. Um, he doesn't. He's not a leader. And what does it say to you about, you know, that infamous trip that he made down to Mar-a-Lago in the days after what happened here two years ago? I mean, that just goes to show you the type of person that Kevin McCarthy is. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy cares about Kevin McCarthy, uh, and his concerns lie in uh, his professional future. Um, he's the type of person who would, in the immediate aftermath of this, you know, 
historic event, the attack on our capital, um, would lay the blame at the foot of the president, former president Donald Trump. Uh, and then when he saw it as not being politically advantageous, not leading to the speaker's gavel, um, he goes down to Mar-a-Lago, kisses Donald Trump's ass, and uh, here we are. If Kevin McCarthy doesn't get the votes to become House Speaker, which he may not, what do you want to see and to hear from the person who is eventually the House Speaker? I, I want to see the um, new leadership denounce political violence uh, and hold its members accountable for the rhetoric that they use, uh, that we've seen time and time again inspire acts of violence across the country. One thing they've done here in recent days, I've noticed, is remove the magnetometers outside of the House chamber that had been put in place. What do you think of that? I, I don't understand, in, you know, in this day and age, um, when we are dealing with a rise in crime across the country and a rise in political violence across the country, and we know that the Capitol uh, and members of Congress are targets of that violence, that we would be doing anything to lessen the security posture at the Capitol. Yeah. Michael Fanone, I know this is a strange moment for you to be here two years later, but thanks for joining us this morning and for coming over here. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Appreciate it. Don, I mean, as you were just noting there, you know Michael Fanone very well. And to see this moment playing out two years later, as this is very much still a conversation that's underway when it comes to security here at the Capitol, security nationwide, what these threats look like nationwide, and this fight playing out here on Capitol Hill. And safety. And listen, I could say the insurrectionists picked the wrong people to mess with and also the election deniers and the lawmakers because Michael Fanone is going to say what Michael Fanone thinks uh, and he's going to say how he feels, as we have been witness to on many interviews here on CNN. So thank you very much for that, Michael and Caitlin. Talk soon. Speaking of this, we want to talk about the insurrection, the election lies. It's impossible not to mention Rudy Giuliani, a new CNN documentary, takes a closer look at how America's mayor became Trump's right-hand man. Forget Paris and forget London and forget everything else. New York City is where it's at. I don't know how close Giuliani and Trump were personally in the 1980s, but I do know they occupied similar spaces. They're outer borough guys. One thing that they have inherited from their fathers is a certain kind of awe and resentment of Manhattan and those rich people. Rudy represented the kind of every guy who came from the boroughs and came to New York and made it big. If you are a person that's looking at a snow globe, if you will, from the outside, even if you end up inside the snow globe, you always feel like an outsider. Giuliani didn't come from the upper crust establishment that may have fueled his ambition. Did it also contribute to some deep sense of insecurity that he was an outsider? And in that, maybe he does identify with Trump. So joining us now is CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon. He's a former chief speechwriter for Mayor Rudy Giuliani. So many lives you have lived. Thanks for joining us this morning. Listen, we're talking about Rudy Giuliani, who's I guess he could be, you know, the chief of the election deniers under Donald Trump. And then you have all of the election deniers now who are causing the chaos at 
the Capitol. It's all related. It's all come full circle. It, it is. And here on the second anniversary of January 6th attack on the Capitol, it is worth remembering, as Michael Fanon said, how accountability still has not been imposed. And, and the legacy of January 6th is still very much with us. Take a look at the chaos with Kevin McCarthy on Capitol Hill. Those 20 or so holdouts, the vast majority of them, are, were election deniers. The vast majority voted to overturn the election after the attack on the Capitol. And, and I think talking about Rudy on this day and CNN's new documentary also ties into that because that's about somebody who once was a law and order figure, uh, someone I had the honor of working for when he was mayor, with which I would argue a distinguished record, uh, and the dissent uh, to being Donald Trump's lackey, trying to overturn the election and playing a role in inciting January 6th with his trial by combat comments, which I thought was unforgivable. I think, go ahead. No. Uh, I, <laughs> so I read his cue. No, 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 no. I was just, because, listen, uh, I remember, I covered Rudy Giuliani's first day as mayor. I remember. Really? Yes, I did. I was, a, I was a field producer at WNYW Fox 5, and part of my job as the field producer that day was to cover his first day on the job. And I remember the, you know, going from Dinkins to Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. We have been you know, the last 10 years or so, so D.C., actually even more, so I, I think since Obama, so D.C.-focused. But we forget the influence that, that New York City and Rudy Giuliani had on the, you know, on our politics in this country. That's right. And look, I mean, I, you know, one of the things this documentary does is I think it deals with the different chapters of Rudy's life. There's the first chapter, U.S. attorney, the Italian-American who breaks the back of the mob, takes yeah. on Wall Street corruption. The second act, uh, you know, the mayor of New York City. And the record is extraordinary. You know, when he came in, um, the officer talking about the time, New York City averaged 2,000 murders a year. Yeah. They fell almost 70% yeah. under his watch, almost 60% reduction in crime, welfare cut in half, turning a multi-billion dollar deficit into a multi-billion dollar surplus. The Disneyfication of, of New York City. I, that is, I totally that's reject that. I think that's okay. nonsense. Right. Quality of life does matter. Square. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of lessons that, frankly, are from the policies that were put in place at that time, which then were adopted by mayors across the country that could be relearned right now. And part of the tragedy, to my eyes, of, of Rudy's fall is that the lessons of that era are less available because of what he has done in the fourth act of his life. Yeah. Um, and and that is part of, of the tragedy. I just think it's amazing if we take that shot of the like him standing on that island looking at the Statue of Liberty, like alone on an island on that rock mm. right there. This was America's mayor. And I just wonder for you how surreal it is, because when I moved to New York in 2001, a lot it was so great, largely because of a lot that he had done. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is not to say that he was not a controversial mayor. And, you know, one of the things I learned on 9-11, I was 27, 28 when I became his speech, chief speechwriter. 9-11 happens. I learned a lot from the man. And so all this, this, this own evolution has in its own way been painful to watch somebody it just that you admire. It's for you. Of course it is. Um, and it was, it was a long time ago. But to see the dissent from America's mayor, and one of the things, the principles he advanced, you know, one of the ideas that I loved was, he said, to be locked into partisan politics doesn't permit you to think clearly. And I think a large part of the dissent of Rudy Giuliani yeah. into the election ire is about partisan, being right. locked into partisan politics and yeah. not thinking clearly. It's like two different people. And you know, you know what? I was Donna Hanover Giuliani's producer at Channel 5. You I would produce not. stories for her. Yes, I was. That is a, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. We'll trip down memory lane for you. Uh, John, thank you thank very you much. Thanks. And you guys, everyone is not going to want to miss this. New CNN original series, Giuliani, What Happened to America's Mayor, premieres Sunday, this Sunday. Back-to-back -back episodes start at 9 p.m. Eastern, only right here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
this is going to drag out for at this point? I'd love to know, but we're working through and we made good progress today, so we'll continue to talk. Did you agree with we're three days into this. This is the longest since the 1850s. Well, I have the longest speech on the floor, so apparently I like to make history. So th- it's another round, but the question is, is it the last call for Kevin McCarthy? Good morning, everyone. Caitlin, live in Washington, D.C., at Capitol Hill once again. <laughs> this is becoming my new home. I miss you guys. Do no. I still have a chair in the studio, or did you guys get guys, rid of it? Guys, bring Caitlin's chair back. <laughs> She's coming back on Monday. I swear, if you're not here, we're coming there. <laughs> yeah, well, it's remarkable. You know, day four of the Speaker's election, you know, Don, as you see just what's playing out here. It certainly is. The House will be on their 12th vote when they reconvene in just a few hours. McCarthy has failed on the previous 11. Somehow he has seen some progress, but is there still a path for him to become Speaker? Plus this. We're going to definitely look this guy uh, uh, and look him in his eyes. He's, he's going to have to deal with this, and he has been dealing with this for seven weeks. It's, it's not about to end. The father of one of the four murdered Idaho college students speaking out as new evidence reveals how police tied the suspect to the killings. Also, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin showing dramatic signs of improvement just days after he suffered that cardiac arrest on the field. Great news to share on that front. We'll get back to all the chaos in Washington in just moments. But first, this morning, we are learning chilling new details about the murders of the four college students in Idaho. The arrest affidavit links 28-year-old Brian Koberger to DNA found on a tan leather knife sheath that was on the bed of one of the victims. And phone records place Koberger near the house of the four victims on at least 12 different occasions prior to the murders. The affidavit stating, quote, all of these occasions except for one occurred in the late evening and early morning hours of their respective Days And CNN's John Miller has learned that a surveillance operation led to the arrest of the suspect who was seen placing garbage bags into neighbors' bins. Our very own Jim Shudo spoke to the father of 21-year-old Kaylee Consalves. Here's what he said. You read the affidavit and you just find out that nobody understands exactly why, but he was stalking them, he was hunting them. Mm. It was just a person looking for an opportunity and it just happened to be in that house. And uh, that's hard to take. She had her phone right next to her and she couldn't call 911. So these were just girls that went to sleep that night and um, a coward, you know, a a hunter that went out and he picked his little opponent that was girls. And that's probably why the house was targeted. So for some perspective, now we go straight to CNN anchor and chief national security correspondent Jim Shudo. Jim, hello to you. This was the first time the father came to, uh, face-to-face with the alleged killer. What else did he say about that moment? Well, Don, first, I, I always start, uh, I've been speaking to Steve for, for a number of weeks now. Here's a father who lost his daughter. I, I, I'm, I'm a father. I, I have a daughter. And whenever I speak to him, I can't imagine the pain he's going through. Uh, and it is real real pain and you hear it in his voice and the emotion. I will say I noticed something different in speaking to him this time in that now that there is a suspect, I sensed uh, uh, resolve, right? And, and he said that directly to me. He said that this killer picked the wrong family, right, to, to, to wrestle with and that they're, you know, they're going to fight back now, right? He sees a path towards justice here. 
Uh, but of course, this is still a family that is deeply, deeply wounded going through the loss uh, of their child. Uh, I, I will say, when I spoke to them, I had a number of questions for him, given that the affidavit is out. Now we know that the trail of evidence that led to Koberger now uh, as a suspect. I asked him what it was like for him to be in the courtroom with Koberger uh, yesterday and, and have a listen to what he said. I was pretty angry. It was pretty heated. Um, I wanted him to look me in the eye. He knows I want him to look him in the eye. So he's, he, he didn't, he didn't give me that opportunity, but, uh, I feel like he's scared to look at me in the eyes and, uh, start to understand what's about to happen to him. You know, he picked the wrong family. He didn't look him in the eyes. Koberger would not look uh, Steve in the eyes in, in that in that courtroom here. The other thing I'll just note, uh, Don, in, in the earlier piece of the interview you played there, he was describing one thing we learned in the affidavit was that one of the surviving roommates had an encounter or saw the killer in black, she said, uh, wearing, uh, wearing a mask, uh, the, the, the other roommate said, um, and then frozen, in effect. He said she was petrified, understandably. These, these, are, these are young people, petrified uh, to do something in, in the wake of that. Uh, it, just so many layers to this case. Uh, we're going to continue to be on it. We're going to play a lot more of that interview uh, when we're on the air at 9 o'clock. Fascinating and heart-wrenching interview. Jim Shudo, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Poppy? Well, Kevin McCarthy is just a few hours from a fourth day of voting in this record-breaking historic Beat. I guess it's not full record, but it's the first time in 164 years in this race to be House Speaker. The California Republican claims he is confident that he can still win what has become the longest race for the Speaker's gavel since 1859, again, 164 years ago. Will the next vote be different than the first 11? No persons having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname a speaker has not been elected. 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 11 times. McCarthy is defending the laundry list of concessions in his quest to become speaker while acknowledging there is no timetable for a solution. No, no, I'm not putting any timeline on it. I just think we've got some progress going on. We've got members talking. Um, I think we've got a little movement, so we'll see. Joining us now to talk about everything that has happened, all of the failed votes, is Republican Congressman David Valadeo of California. He is one of only two Republicans who is returning to Congress out of the 10 who voted to impeach former President Trump. He is supporting Kevin McCarthy's bid for House Speaker. Is that still the case? You're still Absolutely. voting for Kevin today? Yeah, nothing has changed on that, and I would say the vast majority of us, nothing has changed on that either. Is there any threshold of your limit of how many votes you'll cast for McCarthy? No, because ultimately, I don't believe this is just about Kevin McCarthy. I mean, some of these folks are trying to change the whole structure of how this place works. And I understand people at home are frustrated with the way this place works. But you want members with experience that know how to work with colleagues who know how to legislate to work their way up. And the, what they're trying to do right now is basically bypass the process, weaken the average member, and put themselves in a position where the speaker has no power. And so 
a consensus candidate or any other situation is basically putting um, no person will want to be speaker or have the ability to be speaker or an effective speaker. They'll be a figurehead who will just take the fall whenever they get mad. But if everything was resolved right now and they took the deal that Kevin McCarthy has offered them, would it he be weakening himself as speaker with the concessions he's given them? Well, and we haven't seen the specific details, so I'm, I'm hopeful that sometime this morning we get a chance to actually read into him. But from what I'm hearing, uh, there is a lot of uh, work around there. It still gives him a lot of flexibility to be able to be uh, an effective leader. You th still think the concessions he's offered so far, he will still be a powerful speaker? I still think he has the ability to be effective. I mean, powerful and effective, I think, are two very different things. Uh, I don't know if we necessarily want someone who's a powerful uh, person in any sort, uh, sort of position here in Congress, but we want people to be effective and have the tools necessary to pass legislation to get the things done that they need to do. He said these 11 failed votes. Where is his mindset? Is he still committed to this, you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I had a conversation with him on the floor yesterday. He's absolutely committed. And even in uh, the closed-door meeting I had with him and about 60 or 70 members, and the vast majority are here, if it's one vote or if it's 1,000 votes, we're, we're there for him. And you have said that they are pushing for McCarthy because the concern is that if there is an alternative to him that emerges, you know, we've talked about Steve Scalise, we've talked about these other names, that person you believe would also still face the same standards that these hardliners are putting on Kevin McCarthy. Absolutely. No, as far as if it's Kevin McCarthy or, or if it's someone else, what they're asking for is basically to weaken the average member. And they say the opposite in public, but the reality is they're trying to put themselves in a position where they have more power than the average member. And we don't agree with that. And then obviously, if, if it's not Kevin McCarthy, the next person that would jump up in line, if it's Steve Scalise or whoever a consensus candidate would be, is going to have to agree to these same types of terms. And we just don't like that. Are there any conversations happening among Republicans that you've spoken with about a consensus candidate or about asking Kevin McCarthy to bow out of the race? No, that's not happened. I've not had that conversation. So you haven't heard from Republicans who would like for him to, to bow out? I mean, there's Republicans who are frustrated with the situation, but they also understand what's going on. They understand that it, if it's not McCarthy, whoever the next person in line is going to face these same types of issues and dilemmas and have to fight for the same issues. And I don't think there's anyone better for that role right now than Kevin McCarthy to fight and try to negotiate uh, some sort of compromise here. And you're kind of remarkable because you were here when every Everything happened to John Boehner. Did you ever think you would see that happen again? I would hope it wouldn't, but no. It, it, I, I don't think uh, this is going to change. I, there's members that come from areas that their constituents appreciate this and want this type of uh, action, and uh, sadly, it's going to be part of our uh, process for a while. So I think we just have to come to a compromise that accommodates everyone. How difficult? do you think governing is going to be with this group of 20 hardliners and a slim majority? Well, I think the slim majority is going to be a more difficult issue than uh, than the hardliners personally. Um, I mean, the, they're going to have needs as well for their districts. They've got to also produce for their constituents, and their constituents expect them to be effective. And for them to be able to do that, they're going to have to negotiate not just with the speaker, but they have to pass bills off the House floor. And there's a group of members right now that are watching and uh, what they're doing to the uh, Congress. and probably aren't going to be very happy with them and aren't going to be very easy to work with over the next two years. All right, Congressman, you've got a call coming up this morning, right, with other Republicans? That's the hope. I haven't seen it scheduled yet, but I, uh, I've been told that we'll be getting a call sometime today. Okay. We'll be staying in touch. You've got a busy day ahead of you. Thank you for taking time to join us this morning. Thank you. Don Poppy, as you hear there, you know, we're just a few hours away. He says they're committed to McCarthy because, of course, the concern is that whoever is after McCarthy, if there was an alternative, that they would still also face basically the same standards and the same demands that Kevin McCarthy is facing. Caitlin, I'm just exhausted. And I think you're I exhausted. For, She's working. I'm on just the yes, I said back. I speak for everybody, especially <laughs> Caitlin, but especially the people. It's it is literally 
Groundhog's Day. I just, I can't even watch it anymore. I've like moved to Netflix. It's, I, it's, I will always watch you. Not you, her. And She's not there I saying, know, I, I know, nominate I this person because you're like, how many more? I am counting how many times we can say remarkable or historic. <laughs> Caitlin, what do you think? It's quite a few. And I've been talking to some of these Republicans. They're up late at night having these closed door discussions talking about this. And they're talking about it late into the night. They still have a lot of questions about what is being said behind closed doors, those, though, and what concessions are being made as well. Yeah. It's something that you should know. This was right. our text chain last night between the, the anchors, uh, like <laughs> Caitlin and I. Why are you I, spilling and, our beans? Because I was spilling the beans. We were like, wait, you may have to go on early if they go late into the night. And we're like, <laughs> no, make them adjourn, Caitlin. Like, <laughs> Send Caitlin home to New York for some for some clothes. But you've looked great. I don't know where your clothes come from. All right, we got to get to break. Caitlin, thank you. Keys, please. That's all we're hearing now. Next, Next. CNN's Chris Wallace is going to weigh in on this chaos, right? Uh, We are also we have good news. There he is. We have good news for you this morning um, on Demar Hamlin, finally, right? Teammate of Buffalo Bills safety who's made remarkable progress after suffering cardiac arrest during the game. Hamlin even asking his doctors, this is amazing. By the way, this is what he asked when he wakes up, if the Bills won. When he asked, did we win? The answer is yes. You know, Damar, you won. You've won the game of life. So in just a few hours, the House will be back in session after Republicans failed to elect a new House Speaker 11 times since Tuesday. 20 Republican holdouts have been voting against Kevin McCarthy, though the two sides have been negotiating since last night's session was adjourned. Don't know what the progress is, but I don't know. Maybe Chris Wallace has some insight. He knows all. Chris, you know all. So, Chris, what do you know about this? Do you know? Do you have any insight, scoop, any information on what's happening? I think the most interesting thing I've read... Uh, is that some of the McCarthy people are getting understandably fed up and they're basically, have you got a path to 218 or don't you have a path? And they were calling for a a meeting of the caucus today where he would explain the situation and also explain all the giveaways he's given to those 19 or 20 oppositionists. And McCarthy didn't agree to a meeting in person He agreed to a call, and that's what you heard Caitlin talking to Congressman Valadeo about, which, of course, is much easier to control. And they haven't even officially announced the call yet. So I think the natives are getting restless in the sense that they're beginning to say, you know, they got real lives and they're doing this over and over and over again. Eleven votes. They're in today. And I think some of them are getting frustrated. Yeah, But here's the thing, though. If he gives away too much, he stands to lose. He could lose the support that he has from the 200 or so people who Absolutely. are already voting for him. Absolutely. That's, no, that's no. He's, it's a balancing act. Yeah. He's got to <laughs> give away the store, but not in such a way that uh, the, the, his 200 supporters uh, say, no, that's enough. Yeah. And then there's another question, which is, of course, if he drops out, and let's say Steve Scalise, who many no. people think as the number two, would then move up, does he have to abide by the deal that McCarthy made, or can he say, hey, we're starting from scratch, guys. Is Kevin McCarthy going to be the next speaker? Well, you wouldn't bet the farm on it today, would you? <laughs> would you bet much on it? No. No, I wouldn't. Um, look, it, is it can it happen? Yes. Is there a possibility of a deal? Uh, I, you know, but I am struck by two things. So far, how resolute the oppositionists have been, that tw- those 20 people who continue, despite a lot of concessions on the part of McCarthy, but also 
by how firm the pro-McCarthy vote has been, the 200. And as, at a certain point, somebody's got to give. Either the, the opposition is going to break or the support is going to break. If I had to bet right now, I think the support is going to break. Isn't I'm that looking, amazing? Uh, uh, Am I boring you? I mean, you're reading. No, the, uh, the reason I'm doing it is because I'm just. to me no, no, every day. You're not boring me. There's a method to my madness here. So I just okay. sort of did a cursory <laughs> uh, glance through the post. Yes. And I've gone through, you know, 14, 15 pages so far. I have not seen Donald Trump mentioned once here, right? And it used to be the paper who loved him. I held up yesterday the New Yorker magazine. It was party of one, him sitting at a dinner table by himself. He said, you know, vote, vote on Truth Social. Vote for Kevin. Everybody do your thing or whatever. And nobody abided by it. No, it's, that's been striking, too, in this. So it, his influence. He still has influence, but waning. Absolutely. I mean, Lauren Boebert, who has been a total Trump supporter, uh, basically went out on the floor, you know, at this point, I forget whether it was yesterday or the day before, and said... You're my favorite president, Mr. Trump, but you're wrong about Kevin McCarthy and he needs to step down. That's it. That's a tell when when suddenly some of the ultra MAGA uh, Congress people, you know, who have just been totally supportive of Trump, including, you know, we should call today what it is, a day of infamy, January 6th. I mean, the day of the insurrection two years ago and people who backed him through all of that are saying, no, voting for Kevin McCarthy is a bridge too far. But then Gates nominated him. He only got one vote. Yeah, I mean, I kind of understand that. <laughs> All right, wait, wait. Okay, I, I want to get that. to something that's not gonna. Yeah. You know, you're like over the. You want to watch Netflix instead of Netflix. Yeah. No, 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 no. Instead of Netflix, that, that, I think. Yeah. You know, that I'm, like, I'm joking. Right now. Yeah, watch. You can watch. Who's talking to Chris Wallace? We have two great interviews that are dropping today. Uh, James Cameron about Avatar. Let's start. Which is, can we start with that and play this great clip from James Cameron? You're gonna play. Sure. Okay. Yes, you can play a clip from my show. It's great. I want people to see it. Watch this, folks. Here we go. It looks like just with the momentum that the film has now that we'll easily pass our break even uh, in the next few days, actually. So so it looks like I can't wiggle out of this. I'm going to have to do these other these other sequels. And uh, I'm sure that we'll have a discussion soon, you know, with the with the top folks at Disney about, you know, the game plan going forward for Avatar 3, which is already in the can. We've already uh, captured and photographed the whole film. Um, and then Avatar 4 and 5 are, are both written. We even have some of 4 in the can. So, you know, I think we can see that, that um, I think we've begun a franchise at this point. You know, what's interesting about it is, and that's why I wanted to interview James Cameron after the movie came out rather than before, is because it's become a business story. He says he needs to make somewhere between one and a half billion, which is he already made, which is more than Top Gun Maverick, and two billion for it to turn a profit and for Disney to say, go ahead with three, four, and five, which go all the way out to 2028. He's there. As he said, he thinks he has a franchise. And then, wait, there's more, Don. Wait, wait, there's more. Yes. Hugh Jackman, yeah, who is you know super talented. That's not Hugh Jackman. <laughs> but he could, Hugh but he could do could that. He that could role, ride yeah. that mythical animal. Uh, he's got a great movie out called The Sun. He's nominated for a Golden Globe Award next Tuesday, mm. and he's also just finishing up Music Man. And and we're gonna have a great season. We've got Andy Cohen. We've got Anna Garten, Jane Fonda, Brian Cranston. Do you cook with Anna Garten? Uh, no, I don't. And in fact, I asked her to bring food. And I was told, 
No, it's too complicated. I just want to see Chris Wallace <laughs> in the kitchen. Basically, she was I, 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 do, I will say this. Yeah. I, my specialty is scrambled eggs, and I make the best eggs and the scrambled eggs. And the, and the key to scrambled eggs is, is you can't overcook them. They've got to be a little bit runny, a little bit soft, and, you know, not hard no. and congealed. No. No? I disagree. I like my eggs scrambled hard. Hard? Yeah. No, no, no. They need to be runny. All right. All right. You know what? Really Sometime you and I have an egg scrambling. We'll contest. have an egg off. All right. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I saw Sun, um, the Hugh Jackman movie. It's fantastic. It's, and he's, he's fantastic. He's, he's fantastic. But, but yeah. forget Netflix, HBO Max, and then of course on Sunday night, 7 p.m. We have the best yeah. of those. So because sometimes I find you got to watch it twice or three times to get the full sub subtext. Yeah. Good salesman. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bring the eggs next time, Thanks, okay? Chris All right, Chris. Who's talking to Chris Wallace? We are right now, but who's talking to Chris Wallace returns for a new season Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Next, you're going to want to see this. What we're learning about the man who saved Damar Hamlin's life moments after he collapsed on the field. And this morning's number is 415 million. Ah, I know what that is. Barry Enten here to I don't explain. know. I don't know what it is. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So officially, it's official. The NFL has canceled the Week 17 game between the Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals, which leads us to CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten with this morning's number. Good morning. Good morning. What is it? What is? This morning's number is... $415 million. That's the weekly revenue generated by NFL games. I should note that's a conservative estimate based off of last season's data. It's from ticket sales, TV ad sales, and gambling revenue. So the idea that they might have canceled this week's games, there was a lot of money that was on the line. And the NFL is a huge business, and it's becoming an even bigger business. So the NFL is becoming more profitable. Taking into account inflation, the average franchise worth is up to $4.5 billion dollars. That is all the way up from 20 years ago when it was just $869 million. And give you an idea of how much the TV stations are making, the Super Bowl ad revenue in 2022, it was five, about $500 million. That's up from $214 million back in 2002. So the franchises are getting wealthier and the TV partners are also getting wealthier. Of course, there was another sort of component that's going on here, American betting. How many Americans bet on the NFL? We're now up to 47 million. That's up from 38 million just three years ago. During the bottom of the pandemic, it was 33 million. But we're clearly seeing a rise. And this idea, you know, that maybe there are fewer NFL fans than there used to be. Favorite sport to watch. Look at this trend line. There is no trend line. It was 38% in 1981, 38%, 37, 35, 36%. The fact is the NFL is America's favorite sport, and it's here to stay. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Appreciate the numbers, Don. All right, thank you. This morning, we are getting a positive and really remarkable update on Damar Hamlin. We're so happy about that. His doctors say that he is awake, neurologically sound, and is moving his hands and feet. Damar has been sedated and intubated since Sunday's hit sent him into cardiac arrest. Doctors say that he is still critically ill, but his condition has improved substantively, substantively, which is um, just the news his family and teammates have been waiting for. So we're also hearing new audio from the moment DeMar collapsed on the field. Listen. Go ahead and go over to the cot. I don't like how he went down. We're going to need everybody. I'll call. I'll call. We need airway. Oh, bring everybody. We need airway doctor, everybody. 
bring the cot with the medics, all of you, and get woods out here. Field medics. Go ahead for field medics. Read to her, son. Go ahead. I need another medic in the back, please. Need a medic in the back of the bus. Not forever, Dave. We are right outside the gate. Well, Bill's offensive lineman, Dion Dawkins, praised Denny Kellington, the Bill's assistant trainer who gave CPR to DeMar on the field. And Dion Dawkins now joins me. We're so happy to have you. Good morning to you, sir. We really appreciate it. This is some good news that we've all been waiting for, no more than you and the family, obviously. How are you feeling learning that DeMar has been improving, that he's awake? That's got to feel good to you. Yeah, that's... Uh, well, first of all, uh, great morning. Um, well, that is the best news that me and my teammates could have ever received, that DeMar has uh, woken up and that he's been uh, responsive and his parents are in, are in high, 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 high faith and, and, and high spirits. So uh, it's, been, it's been great, honestly. It has. Yeah. Uh, listen, I got to reveal a little secret. I've been texting with his mom. She's such a great lady. I just won't. Yeah. Re- I won't reveal what we've been saying, but she is a. She's a. It's such a great family, and um, if there's any good to come out of all of this, it, I think people know that he comes from a great family and what a great person he is. Right, and uh, and not to miss out like his father, but his father like has been there every step and uh, has been a huge part of it too. So. Uh, just to give credit and credit there as well. Yeah. Can you talk to more about that conversation? Because his father spoke to the team. Um, did, did um, you heard it? I'm sure. Uh, and what did you think? What was your reaction? Well, just just to see his his father's facial expression and just to hear what he was saying to to the entire team, it kind of just took a whole bunch of weight off of our shoulders. Because like you know. When when tragedies happen and 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 things happen, uh, like our brains, like they go into like this bank of of, of uncertainty or 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 just like you know just not understanding. So with with his dad coming out on the uh, iPad and just telling us just just uh, everything is gonna be all right. Demar is 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 getting back and. Um, if he could say anything and, and what he would say is just uh, handle business. So um, simply just handling business from him and his father, uh, like that's just something that we needed to honestly hear, like from that hospital room and, uh, and we heard it. So um, it, was a, it was a great feeling and it was great energy. So uh, it, was a, it was a beautiful thing, truly. It was a beautiful thing. And with seeing his father's expression on his face, uh, it was just honestly all we needed to honestly see to, you know, take a giant step forward. It, your communication with Demar, anything, any? What? Have you had like any? Talk about personally. Have you had a chance? Yeah. Just. No, no, no. Just, just, just what the doctors and his parents are telling us. But uh, you know, he is doing great, and uh, he really is, and. Uh, He's taking huge leaps forward, uh, and his doctors are using words that I can't even pronounce, but uh, <laughs> they all mean great steps forward and in uh, and, and a huge way. So uh, that's really 
enough communication that DeMar needs to give us for us to understand what that true message is and that he's winning that fight. So that's a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great viewing. You think the team is, is uh, ready or willing to get back on the field this weekend? You know, um, it would be so hard to to speak for everybody, but like I know that in the position that they have put us in, and from the messages that we're getting back, and from the responses that we're getting from Cincinnati and and his family, it's putting us in a in a great arrow of direction, and uh, that's honestly all we can ask for is just to be faced in the right direction and to just do it with high hopes and, and high grace. But, you know, uh, at McDermott and and the staff here, like they've been doing such a great job of respecting the individual's personal battles because we're all go, like going through um, personal battles with this situation. So with the like the staff here, with Josh, with with all of our guys that are just doing everything in the right way to 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 keep everybody in a positive bubble, um, I, like I would say that they're in doing so. So, you know, sorry that I really can't answer that directly, but hopefully that answers that question. Yeah, listen, we got it. Um, Dion, you've yeah. been so great during all of this. There's a lightness that you didn't have in the initial interviews that we saw, uh, and it's good to see you feeling better. And, of course, there's the good <laughs> news about Jamar. Thank you so much, sir. You be well. Yes. Thank you. Poppy. You're right about that. There really is, Don. Thank you for that. Uh, just day to CNN, the December jobs report. Christine Romans and Rahel Solomon have all the numbers next. Just in to CNN, the December jobs report. The U.S. economy added 223,000 jobs last month month. Let's get to chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Star, Chrissy Romans, and CNN business correspondent, Rahel Solomon. So It's a strong number, but it is cooling, right? And so I think this might be the Goldilocks report that so many on Wall Street wanted to see. 223,000 jobs added, 3.5% the unemployment rate. That's a drop in the unemployment rate. Some people entered the labor market looking for work. The unemployment rate, if you look at the long chart here, was revised actually in November to be 3.6%. So you can see that long decline in the unemployment rate. Those are jobs added Added. So you can see jobs added, that is the weakest in a couple of years. And that's what Wall Street wants to see. They want to see a job market that is solid, but not spinning off inflation. Uh, when I look over there at some of the sectors here, leisure and hospitality, healthcare, construction, 28,000, uh, manufacturing, 8,000 jobs added there. You're still seeing widespread um, hiring in the country outside of tech and in some cases media, but in other parts of the economy, you're still seeing some strength here. And guys, Wall Street likes this because it's cooling, but I want to put it in perspective. Four and a half million jobs created last year. That is the second highest on record after only wow. the year before. Four and a half million jobs. You go back to the, the go-go Reagan days, the best then was like 3.8 million. Four point, four and a half million jobs created in, in the most um, recent year. That's, um, 
that's something. But the slowing more recently, mm. that's the Goldilocks part, I think, that's so important. It's welcome news to the Fed, as Christine pointed out. And for people at home, I think it still indicates a strong labor market, right? We don't want to confuse people when we say a cooling labor market. It is still a strong labor market. I mean, we have gotten a slew of labor data this week that shows there's still more than 10 million open jobs, 1.7 open jobs for every one person looking. But what we're starting to see in this report, as Christine pointed out, is that wages are starting to slow, right? So wages came in at 0.3 percent monthly. That's a little bit lower than expectations on a yearly level. That also came in lighter than expectations. The concern for people who are at home are thinking, well, why are wages going up a bad thing? The Fed has been concerned that some of those higher wages could be trickling into higher prices, which all of us are dealing with. So again, it's the Goldilocks. It's the slowing, but not yeah. the sort of ice cold water on the labor market that still remains pretty More strong. More on those wages. Uh, so on an annual basis, that's 4.6% wage growth. That's a nice pay raise. we Worried that it was more like 5% or higher. Having wage growth in the 4% range shows the Fed's medicine has been working so far. That's what you want to see, that the, all of this aggressive medicine from the Fed is actually doing something to take the, the, you know, the, the temperature down on the patient. You know what? It's kind of weird to sit here and say, you know, and hear you guys go, but this was slower and this was lower. And that's great because it's just so counterintuitive. No, you need to condition it because it's sort of like, what are you talking about? You know, I talked to Neela Richardson. She's the chief economist at ADP, a private payroll provider, yesterday because we got a different labor report yesterday. And I asked her, for people at home, I mean, how would you describe the labor market? And she said something that I thought was so interesting. She said, strong but fragmented. And the reason why I mentioned that is because for certain industries, you actually may not be feeling what we're talking about, right? If you are in tech, if you I are in... I was just going to say, all exactly. those layoffs again this week. And, and I think that's confirmed by some of the anecdotes that we hear about. If you are in areas of the economy that are very sensitive to higher interest rates, you're probably not experiencing what we're talking about. But you can probably find a job pretty quickly because there overall is so much demand for workers right now. Hearing about the Amazon layoffs this week, 18,000, the most they've ever laid off. And I was looking at that number thinking, wow, I mean, that's tough at Amazon. You know that Amazon hired a million people since 2018? Yeah. You sound like my husband. It's like Poppy. <laughs> that's nothing. Your husband's perspective. Smart guy. Context, yeah. Uh, but, you know, you know, Salesforce, you know, they were laying yeah. off 10% of the workforce. And the CEO said, you know, look, he, he kind of said, I'm, I'm sorry. We were hiring too. We yeah. thought this was going to last forever. And, and it didn't. Hired. So look, you're seeing a recalibration, and at least for now, a little sign of cooling in what has been a hot job market. And they think that this is this won't spook the market, right? No, look at the market. Futures, right now futures were up. <laughs> they love the wage number. I swear, guys, that is the wage number. They love the wage number because higher wages spark inflation, and they want inflation to go down. Fingers, hands, toes being crossed. <laughs> All right, thank you guys. We appreciate it. Uh, it's decision day for a new experimental Alzheimer's drug. What the FDA is expected to do next. So this morning, the FDA is expected to reveal its decision on an experimental Alzheimer's drug. It could potentially delay the progression in some people with the disease by years. But a clinical trial did reveal the drug has risks. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, reports now. At first, the signs can be subtle. Missing your exit on the freeway. Forgetting what you need at the grocery store. Misplacing your keys. I'll look at my phone uh, and read the names, and a lot of them don't mean anything to me. Your life marches on independently, but the markers of memory slowly surely begin to fade. That's, crazy. That's what early Alzheimer's feels like. When 80-year-old Jack Driscoll got his own Alzheimer's diagnosis in 2019, 
he was doing okay. But he worried what his future would eventually have in store. I talked to my wife and I talked to my kids and let them know that maybe down the road, I wasn't going to be the same as I was then. So in 2021, Jack enrolled in a clinical trial for an experimental drug called lecanemab. Now pending approval by the FDA, this drug could help postpone the fate of those with early Alzheimer's, in part by removing amyloid plaques from the brain. We're finding that this specific type of amyloid, when removed, actually associates or correlates with uh, a slowing of cognitive decline. Most importantly, clinical trials of the drug found that it slowed cognitive decline in people with early Alzheimer's by 27%. What does that mean? According to models by the drug maker, someone who is 80, like Jack, could experience a two to three year delay in progression to worsening of his Alzheimer's disease. We've been targeting Alzheimer's disease at the end stage when people have dementia, where they can no longer take care of themselves and the pathology and the plaques and the tangles have built up. And by that time, there's not as much as we can do. But nothing comes without risks. And the ones that come with this type of drug have raised red flags. We have known for many years that with almost all of the drugs in this class, there can be a side effect of aria. Dr. Sharon Cohen has been studying Alzheimer's drugs for 30 years and was part of the clinical trial for lecanemab. What she is talking about, aria, is amyloid-related imaging abnormality. It can look like this or this. It's brain swelling or brain bleeding. Though Cohen says these types of side effects were mostly mild in the trial. We do know that lecanemab has a low rate of causing macrohemorrhage, not necessarily fatal, but a low rate, less than 1%. In the phase three clinical trial, there were seven deaths in the placebo group and six deaths in the lecanemab group. According to the investigators though, none of the deaths were considered to be due to lecanemab or aria. The New England Journal of Medicine recently published details of an additional death of a patient on the drug who had been given blood thinners, raising additional concerns. It's pretty hard to say what catamab caused that when you're giving a drug that itself can cause significant bleeding. However, the combination gives us pause. Neurologist Dr. Richard Isaacson agrees that while this drug shows promise, it must come with caution. For example, avoiding blood thinners while taking the medication. I will prescribe this drug in the right person at the right dose and in a very carefully monitored way. But this drug is not for everyone. For Jack, the possibility of continuing to live a full life, spending quality time with all four children and all nine grandchildren, even for just a while longer, well, that is worth the risk. As far as I'm concerned, we're having a great life right now and things are good. and. Uh... My wife is a wonderful caretaker, so we get it with each other and we know what we're living with. So, Don, it, it's not a home run, uh, but it can buy those years of, of, you know, sort of significant Alzheimer's disease progression-free life. And, and that's, I think, why Jack sort of balances the rewards as being greater than the risks. We'll see what the FDA does. Uh, a couple things I'm going to be looking out for is how they're going to address this concern about bleeding. Is there going to be a warning, specifically a black box warning, that it should not be taken with blood thinners? A lot of people that age do take blood thinners. So they're going to have to balance that. Second thing is cost. 
I mean, I, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the cost of some of these drugs, Don, but aducanumab, another drug that was uh, came out, uh, is $28,000 a year. These are really expensive. And again, how do you, you know, there's gonna be a lot of people who potentially could qualify. How do you, how do you sort of adjust for that cost as well, Don? Yeah, there are some risks that uh, need to be taken seriously and looked at, but it is progress and we'll take the progress. Thank you, Sanjay. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Got it. Well, some news out of Washington. We just got word of a meeting on the Hill with Republicans over the fate of Kevin McCarthy. Stand by. Oh, boy. Oh. Caitlin, hopefully some news you have that's going to change things. Get this over with. Yeah. No announcement of a speaker yet. Sorry, Don and Poppy. But we did hear, you know, Manu and Lauren are reporting that there is going to be that 10, 15 a.m. conference call with Republicans. It's notable that it's not in person that they're going to be meeting, talking about this. But they are going to have a call to see what the next steps are. And one of the things that David Valadeo, that Republican that we were speaking with, said that stood out to me was saying, you know, they still want to see a good look of what it was that was happening in these negotiations yesterday with these hardliners of what Mm -hmm. that's actually going to look like, whether or not it's actually going to get Kevin McCarthy any closer to holding the speaker's gavel. I think think he wants to show momentum at least at this, at the very least at this point. But, you know, an end to it, a, a speaker would be nice. Come home. See you Monday. <laughs> Great job we'll this see. week with all that coverage, Kaylin. Thank you. Uh, uh, we'll see you next. We'll see you yeah. on Monday. So thanks, everyone, for hanging out with us this yeah. week. Uh, have a good, safe weekend. We'll see you Monday. CNN News is now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.